Vision of his message. Matt mentioned last week the conclusion of his message that we are beginning a, I don't know what to call this, I guess a bit of a mini-series um, where we are, we'll take some short interruptions in our study through Acts um, to look at the book of 1 John. Now, there's uh, both... Um, <laughs> the reasons for this are, are one, because First John is a great book and we want to focus on what God has for us there as we continue to seek to pursue our first love and seeing Jesus more clearly and loving Him. The other is uh, just to serve practically uh, for guys like myself and Mario who um, are not the primary ones speaking every Sunday, and just to allow Matt, as he continues to go through the book of Acts, to make minor adjustments, um, which uh, for those of us who are speaking less frequently, uh, throws off what we're preaching from time to time, and so this allows us the opportunity to plan apart from any changes that he may make to the Acts study, um, and prepare ahead of time and so that's, that's kind of why we're entering into the book of 1 John beginning this morning. And um, roughly uh, once a month is when we'll have one of these times in 1 John over the next year or so. So this morning I'm going to begin by looking with a quick overview of the book of 1 John, and then we'll jump in to the first, four in, the first four verses, the introduction of the book itself. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have, that you have given to us. I pray that you would move by your Spirit. Give us ears to hear your word this morning. Give us hearts to understand. Give us will to follow. Lord, we need you. Apart from you showing up and speaking this morning, there is no profit to this time for us. So, would you help me as I speak? Would you help all of us as we listen? And would you glorify your name through our time together, we pray. Amen. The middle and the end of the 20th century, John Stott wrote nearly 50 years ago, are an epoch of fundamental insecurity. Everything is changing, nothing is stable. New nations have constantly been coming to birth. New social and political patterns are continually evolving. The very survival of our civilization is in doubt before the threat of a nuclear war. These external insecurities are reflected in the world of the mind and of the spirit. Even the Christian church, which has received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and is charged to proclaim Him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, 
now often speaks its message softly, shyly, and without conviction. There is a widespread distrust of dogmatism and a preference for agnosticism or free thought. Many church members are filled with uncertainty and confusion. As I mentioned, it was nearly 50 years ago that John Stott penned those words. And though an update for today might replace the constant threat of annihilation by nuclear war with the randomness of terrorist attack, not much else in his description need be changed. In fact, in many ways, it seems that internet and the speed of things have only amplified the amount of uncertainty, the questions in our culture. Against this backdrop, to read the letters of John is to enter another world altogether. For his letters are full of assurance, knowledge, confidence, and boldness. The predominant theme of these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is Christian certainty. Certainty about Christ. Certainty about eternal life. John knew that Christianity rises and falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The church's faithfulness to Him alone will determine her significance and relevance no matter what the changing tides of the world around us threaten. The Apostle John, Jesus' closest disciple, one of three who observed the transfiguration, the one who Jesus entrusted the care of his own mother to as he hung upon the cross, the first one to reach the empty tomb, the last remaining survivor of the twelve, wrote five of the New Testament books saturated with Jesus, our only hope of eternal life. The Gospel of John, where we first become familiar with Him, was written that we might have eternal life. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, he writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And in John's Gospel, we see more than in any of the other Gospels, clear pointing and declaring of Jesus' divinity. In 1 John, what we're going to be looking at, if the Gospel of John was written that we might have eternal life, 1 John was written that we might know that we have eternal life. One of the purpose statements of John writes into his letter is found in 1 John 5.13 where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
And the bulk of this letter features tests of genuine faith. Do you obey God's commands? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you love God and his children? Throughout this letter, we'll see that John wants those who profess Christ to test themselves to see if their faith is genuine. And he wants all true believers to be assured of their right standing with God. He doesn't want anyone who says they are Christian to be led astray by false teachers or to presume a false safety. But he's just as adamant that no genuine believer be crippled by uncertainty. So that's a bit of where we'll be going in the coming months as we look at John's first epistle. But for today, we'll focus on the first four verses. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the opening, the introduction of this letter. As we do, listen to see whether you can hear that theme of certainty, of confidence and assurance coming through even in these first four verses. Read with me. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Where do we look to find our stability and our security? Is it in the next promising political candidate? Hope not. The lack of horrifying news in the evening feed? Success of our sports team? Our grades or our GPA? The number on the bathroom scale? A work performance, a review. Where is it that we look to find our security? What is it that John wants his readers to be certain of in these verses? He wants us convinced that the one who has no beginning who is eternal life, the incarnate Son, the second person of the Trinity, was made manifest. He appeared for us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And his hope in sharing this certainty is that his readers will share in the fellowship with him and with God, providing fullness of joy. We have a really simple outline this morning. Five quick headings. Do we have those? No, where is that? Anyways, um, the eternal made manifest, we proclaim for fellowship and complete joy. If you want to put numbers by them, they'd be numbers one through five. All right. 
That's our simple outline. And here's a simple statement if you want to go with it. The eternal arrived in time, producing joy from fellowship divine. That's our Dr. Seuss sighting of the morning. Let's begin with the first one, the eternal, that which was from the beginning. Again, just verses 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Much like the start of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word and the Word became flesh. John starts by talking about the second person of the Trinity, the Son, in terms that are far beyond just his appearing in history as Jesus of Nazareth. John isn't starting with a manger scene and ending with the resurrection. He is going back to before the beginning, the word of life, the eternal life, which was with the Father. The scope is much grander than just what John or anyone else had recently observed. Because there is nothing like a connection with the eternal to bring stability to the temporal. But we hear the words eternal life and and just think of living a really, really, really long time. You know, like, like the sparrow picks up a single grain of sand and flies and flies and flies until it reaches all the way to the moon. It drops off that single grain of sand and then flies and flies and flies back and picks up another And back and forth and back and forth until every grain of sand on every beach around the world is emptied. And then he starts over again. If that's how we try and picture the idea of eternal life, then we've missed the point entirely. He is eternal life. Now, does that mean that we won't have an existence without end? No, that's not what I'm saying. But it means that He is the prize. He is the point of eternal life. Our eternal life comes by relationship with Him who is eternal life. Jesus says as much in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. John writes that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In our search for stability, we could do worse than looking to what God is praying for us. This is commonly referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. As I was reading it this week to help highlight this nature of eternal life. What is eternal life all about? I I was struck in noticing that everything we are talking about this morning is found in this prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Verse 5 says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the the world existed. Here we hear Jesus talking about his eternal nature, being with the Father before time. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. He, He made manifest, he appeared, he made God known in time. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here, Jesus himself is proclaiming the reality of the eternal made manifest for us. Verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's talking about fellowship with God and with one another. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world, this is him again proclaiming, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, this fullness of of joy, Literally, every stop that we're going to be making, everything that is in our verses. I, I read this and I realized our four verses, are, the opening of John 1, are, are like a, a tiny encapsulation of Jesus' high priestly prayer. I don't think that's an accident or a mere coincidence. The prayer in John 17 takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the last words that John records before, Jesus, before Judas betrays Jesus and he is arrested. If this is what Jesus spent his last earthly breaths praying for us, John knows that we need it. That's why John starts this letter with the same content as he writes nearly 60 years later. Here is his declaration, the eternal has appeared among us. The ancient of days in human form to reveal to us what God is like, to show us himself. Jesus literally embodies the character and glory of God. The centrality, the importance of that message hadn't shifted from the time it left Jesus' lips through six decades to when John was now writing his letter. And it hasn't changed in the 2,000 years since either. John knew that everything rises or falls on the person, the identity of Jesus Christ alone. 
But this isn't a passage simply on the eternal nature of God. Because the eternal arrived in time, producing joy from fellowship divine. The second thing we see is that the eternal was made manifest. We see this two times in verse 2. And then we see all this language of we saw, we heard, we touched. Again, just these first couple verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. It appeared. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Twice he, he mentions in just these couple verses that the eternal was made manifest, that he came, that he stepped into time, that he appeared. Four times he uses the word seen or looked upon. Twice he says how he had heard, and that's what he's passing on, as well as describing how he touched with his own hands the reality of Christ appearing. The eternal stepped into time, into history, into specific lives and circumstances, into the lives of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots who left everything to follow him. They lived with him, following him everywhere he went for three years. They saw the miracles. They heard the messages. They were confounded by his priorities, maddened by his failure to conform to their ideals and demands. No one was closer during his three years of public ministry with him night and day. They were the ones that looked into his eyes after he had been praying up all night. They are the ones that couldn't look into his eyes after he had calmed the storm and the raging sea. They are the ones at his side when he overturned the money changers' tables and the ones that he scolded when they were trying to keep the little children from bothering him. They were the ones that heard the explanations to the parables and the ones that were annoyed at all the time he took with those that they didn't think were worth it. It was their feet he washed. It was them that he broke bread with and passed the cup representing his own blood. They saw the great drops of blood he sweat when they couldn't even stay awake. They saw him hanging on the tree at Calvary. And they ate fish with him after he'd been resurrected. The message isn't just that Jesus merely taught about eternity or showed us divine things. 
The message is that eternal life became one of us. That is the substance of John's message. Jesus was fully God, and yet he became fully man as well. Christianity rises or falls on who he is. There is nothing more important that John has to say as he is now the last disciple standing. There is not yet any canon of Scripture which has collected the New Testament. There there is reason for concern on how will this fledgling church do. Threats from within and without of false teachers. And so he writes. He writes to convince there is nothing more important than who he is. In our day, there isn't a lot of struggle with the humanity of Jesus. It's the divinity that gets in our way. That gets all the doubt. Sure, he he was a moral leader, a great man, but not God. That's crazy. Walking on water, raising the dead were just fantastical stories believed by people of a simpler time. Where I've never seen a miracle, so obviously a guy in a podunk part of Israel, he couldn't have done thousands of them. That stretches reality too far to believe. Funny as it may sound to us, that simply wasn't what John had to combat. For one thing, even after 60 years, you could still walk into nearly any village in Galilee or Judea and find folks willing to testify to the supernatural works of Jesus. Honestly, I imagine even if they weren't Christians... You know the accounts of Jairus' daughter recounted by Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, they weren't written so long after the fact that you couldn't go to Galilee where Jairus was a synagogue leader and look him or his family up. Now, 60 years on, maybe he's not around anymore. Likely he's not, but his 12-year-old daughter who Jesus raised from the dead, she might be. If not, her kids, who would have never been born, had had not raised her from the dead, they'd be there, as would their children. You think they didn't hear the story of her encounter with Jesus passed down to them, owing their own very existence to his divine work in her life? You think they wouldn't be ready to tell of that story to anyone who would listen? Or Lazarus, the gathering demoniac, or the thousands fed with a couple loaves and fishes, or the formerly lame and blind and demon-possessed, deaf and leprous that he healed in every village and town that he went through. You didn't have to be a Christian to say, I once was blind, but now I see. 
you can testify to the reality of God's amazing work. Even if you don't fully understand it all. There's enough there to say something supernatural is going on. He's a man unlike any that has ever come or that have ever been around since. John wasn't chiefly concerned with convincing his hearers the supernatural work of Jesus. Another purpose we'll see John had in writing this letter was to protect his readers against false teachers and one of the more popular heresies gaining traction at the end of the first century was that of Gnosticism which believed in the spiritual and the supernatural but they discounted and despised the material world and there were those that were trying to merge this with Christianity God's supernatural, we see Jesus, we see his works. Oh, that's a good thing. We can, we can agree, we can affirm this. The only thing that's problematic is this Jesus being one of us. See, that, that was reprehensible because they despised the material world. They saw it as something that we're to be freed from, to be cleansed from. The goal is to get away from this. So the fact that he would come and become one of us kind of soiled him. So that couldn't have been the way it happened. He must have just... It's been a ghost, a spirit. Yeah, supernatural, no problem. But he, he didn't have flesh. He wasn't walking around in the way we think. That is something that John needed to combat. Because if Jesus is not fully human, well, folks, we're in trouble because he can't represent us. And if he isn't truly God, then... He could not absorb all the wrath that collectively we deserved. So he goes out of his way in these first three verses to make it plain that Jesus wasn't just a ghost or a myth. He was a real man who really came and lived among us. He personally saw him with his own eyes and heard him with his own ears. He had contact with Jesus day after day for three years he was there when Jesus was so tired he fell asleep in the boat while John and the rest of the disciples were fearing for their lives. He ate with him. He knew what his favorite snack was. He could testify that Jesus, the eternal one, was no apparition. He was flesh and blood. He felt his feet wash, being washed by the hands of his teacher, his leader, the one he'd left everything to follow. Though it couldn't have seemed right. He may not have protested the same way Peter did, but do you think it didn't have a similar effect Bearing the touch of Christ. His feet, dry, his feet being dry, washed and dried by Christ Himself. 
He was flesh and blood that bled and died. John isn't saying here that his testimony is just things that Jesus said. His testimony is who Jesus is. The eternal God made manifest for us. That is why he repeats again and again that he saw him and heard him and touched him with his own hands. He's he's telling us that he is real. He really came. He really dwelt among us. John saw his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. And what he saw and heard and touched... That is what he proclaimed. Number three, we proclaim. Three times in in these two verses, verses two and three, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He wants us to get what the subject is. He wants us to hear how emphatic he is that nothing's more important. Listen up. I was there. I was with him. And this is what you need to hear. The substance of his proclamation is the historical manifestation of the eternal. That God invaded history by becoming one of us, living as one of us, in order ultimately to die for all of us. Raised to life again, to give us eternal life. Because He is eternal life. The substance of the message is Jesus. Because everything hinges on who He is. This is John's attempt to speak peace and stability and security. Theologically, we must understand the nature of the incarnation, God becoming man. Jesus is no myth, fairy tale, or fable. He is no ghost or illusion. He truly is the God who took on full humanity, fully God and fully man. Not half God and half man. All God and no man, or all man and no God. Nor nor is he just a man uniquely in touch with the divine. He is the God-man, like no one else who will ever live. He has always been with the Father, and at Bethlehem, he came to be with us. This is the wonder and the scandal of the Incarnation. John Piper summed up the incarnation's significance this way. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is true, is law. Everything he did is perfect. 
His book claims a universal authority over every other book that's ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. When God becomes man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian. Imperialism, despotism, absolutism. Who does he think he is? God. The actual historical arrival of the eternal God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the message of John's proclamation. That's the message, but what that produces is why he proclaims it. That why is for fellowship with God and one another. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The word here is koinonia, fellowship, union. This is the oneness that Jesus was praying for in John chapter 17. And in both places we we see this overlap, this intermingling between fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. A little further down in chapter 17, still part of the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The way it's stated, both passages, 1 John, verse 3, and this end of John 17, with, with the degree of, of overlap and intermingling of 
of fellowship with God and with one another, it almost reminds me of Paul's testimony of of being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus where he's persecuting the church, but Jesus confronts him and says, no, you're persecuting me. He's so aligned with his church that there's no distinction, no separation between the persecution that Paul is doing and carrying out against the church and that of Christ himself. And here, there are no distinct boundaries between fellowship with one another and fellowship with God, which makes sense when even our interactions with one another contain the added element of the Holy Spirit indwelling each believer. God is in our fellowship. He is part of our conversations. And these are grand things that are being said, the, the, the level of unity and oneness, the type of fellowship that is to define God's people, the church, striking. They, they seem so far off and distant, but these are not the hollow wishes of a head-in-the-clouds dreamer. This is the prayer of God himself. And if, and if, as James says, that the prayer of a righteous man avails much, how much will the prayers of God himself accomplish? Not only was this Christ's prayer, that his followers would be one, they would be together. Within hours of these words leaving his lips, he sacrificed himself bearing the penalty of our sins so that we could be one with him and with one another. This is the sovereign God praying for our fellowship and unity. He will bring it about. Now, I'm, I'm not going to jump from there to care groups and say that if you're not in, if you're not going, it's a sin. Okay, I'm not going to do that. And if we ever do, call us on it. Because there is no scripture that says that care groups are a necessity. But we do have passages like this that talk about fellowship as a primary purpose of the incarnation itself. And we don't equate fellowship with care groups, but we do try to design care groups as a purposeful pursuit of fellowship. We provide the care group structure because we are convinced of our need for fellowship and the good that God intends to bring us through it. And we recognize how difficult fellowship can be practically when we are spread from Anderson to Moore, from TR to Graycourt. Care groups are not the only means available, but as far as established structures, the best means that we've come up with so far to provide consistent opportunity for meaningful fellowship to occur week after week. We provide them as a context so that everyone can have this vital arena of Christian life readily available to them. Now, it's only a context 
Still takes all of us working together to actually make it happen. We have groups that meet on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Sundays. If you're not in one, let us help you find one. If you are in one but not consistent in pursuing fellowship, can I plead with you for your sake, for the sake of our entire body, your brothers and sisters, please don't neglect this gift. And if you're in a group and feel that fellowship isn't happening to your standards, please permit me just for a moment a brief pastoral admonition because we know it is an imperfect structure that is comprised of imperfect components, namely all of us. So if anyone is unsatisfied with their present experience of fellowship, can I encourage you to first assess your own patterns and tendencies before being tempted to point fingers at anyone around you. Seek to grow in this area personally. After all, you are the only one that you have any ability or power to change, something I'm reminded of day by day. I can't change my kids. I can't make anyone do anything in their growth. I have enough trouble with myself. That's the one who I have to answer for that I need to work on changing. If you are actively pursuing and growing in personal commitment and practice of fellowship and still find a lack in your present context, then I would encourage you to have a conversation with those in your group so you can all discuss helpful and reasonable expectations and commitments of walking this out together. Now, we're certainly not limited to care groups as the only place to pursue fellowship, but I would encourage you that it's a wonderful place to start. Now, since you allowed me that admonition, I also want to offer this encouragement. I already see this as an area of strength for this body. Sure, we can still grow. But I see it happening in the care groups I visit. I see it in the number of folks that are still hanging out here over an hour after our meeting has concluded every week. I see it in the number of folks that get together for lunch following the meeting and that get together throughout the week. I see it in those that open their homes to those needing a place to stay for weeks at a time or or just needing an hour and a shoulder to cry on. I see it in those that go to the hospital and to homes, those that can't easily get out on their own, serving and sharing the Savior with every visit. It's in the texting and the phone calls and the Facebook conversations going on throughout the week, sometimes throughout the sermon. God is at work answering his prayer. Because this is an essential part of the Christian life, we want, to, we want it to be a defining mark of our life together. So we're going to take a whole evening next month during Equip, our Wednesday evening meetings, to discuss together what gospel-centered community looks like and how we can grow together in it. And by the way, those Equip meetings will be a wonderful opportunity to connect with a group if you don't have one as we all are here meeting together in one place. The eternal arrived in time 
producing joy from fellowship divine. Complete joy. Number five. John writes, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The message of the eternal God made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, we noted was for the purpose of providing fellowship, union, and oneness between God and one another, and the result of that union is absolute joy, complete joy, fullness of joy. I don't know how to illustrate this better than the reality itself, especially the case of a parent longing for their child to know the true and living God. I can remember a few years ago a friend telling me about his youngest son, who was at that time in college, who had just committed his life to Christ. Said, and he wasn't speaking in hyperbole. He said, I can die now. I'm happy. My work is done. It was the youngest of his three children, all then at that point believers. Now, he wasn't done being a parent. Even though all three kids were adults, at the time one of his children had just been diagnosed with MS. His oldest son was still in Afghanistan with a wife and newborn at home. Cares in this world had not ended, but what mattered to him more than anything else was resolved. He had a oneness with each of his children that would extend beyond the grave. And his joy, oh, was complete. That's why John is writing. Speaking of stability and security, I, I know in our heart of hearts, this is where many of us as parents live. We're secure in our own standing with God, but our hearts ache over where our children are at. Many of us are not in the happy place of assurance with our children which is particularly difficult for those with wayward teens or adult children that are not walking with the Lord. Uh, I've specifically just been praying for you this week. For those walking through this challenging road, over the last couple of years I've prayed with many of you personally over this. Not to mention, know what it's like for my own family. my brother that's not a believer. I've heard the heartache and seen the tears. And there usually is no revealed rhyme or reason. This applies to many of the best parents I know. Some of the best leaders I know. Some of the best Christians I know. Watch you walk the path of heartache, hope, and compassion with pain so deep because the love is so deep. 
but deep as it is, it cannot eclipse God's love for your child. Your hope cannot originate with the love of your child's earthly parents. It must be hinged on their heavenly one. Because Christianity doesn't rise or fall based on who you are. But on the person and work of Jesus. I want you to hear that you are not alone. You are not a failure. Your story is not finished. Jesus prayed his prayer. John wrote this letter. Because their joy was not yet complete. This is written because it's unfinished. Because they knew what it was like to long for the completion of that joy, but it had not yet taken place. John wrote this letter because some were falling prey to false teachers, because others were living lives of questionable morality, and still others lacked confidence and assurance of their standing with God. He wrote this letter because a happy ending wasn't yet assured for all who he was writing to. Throughout this letter, John refers to his readers as his children, my little children, beloved. He writes as a father longing for his children to have assurance of oneness with the eternal one. But the joy he was seeking wasn't yet complete. In the fullest sense, that is the same for all of us. It's a future, yet certain joy. These four verses from the beginning to our future eternal fullness of joy, they offer the full span of created history with Jesus at the center of it all and our relationship with Him. John had seen firsthand the reality of the eternal made manifest for us, and he is writing for each of our sakes that we might have fellowship together with him so that all our joy might be complete. So wherever we are this morning, may we look with John to the eternal one who has invaded history to rewrite our stories and our kids' stories and the story of a corrupt and broken world to glorify Himself through making us one with Him, a reason for hope and joy indeed. The eternal arrived in time, producing joy from fellowship divine. Please pray with me. Lord, You alone know the state of our hearts. Would you speak to them now? For those that need peace, stability, security, would you, O eternal life, come and speak? Lord, I 
Would you be as real to us as you were to John who saw and heard and touched and was so aware of you invading his world? Would you make us aware of all the ways that you have and are invading our worlds? May we see you as the great eternal one, but also as the real one who came to identify with us and ultimately to take our place so that we could be joined with you forever. Oh, convince us. Speak this truth to our hearts. Overwhelm us with your love, we pray. Amen.